All right, everyone, let's uh, open up this morning in a word of prayer here, and we'll pray for Maggie, too. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble as your people this morning to, to learn about you, to study your word, to worship you, to hear your word preached. Just, Lord, I pray that you'd bless our time together this morning, and Lord, pray for Maggie as well with this issue with her eye this morning. Um, pray, Lord, you'd give the doctors wisdom, and that you would uh, lay your healing hand upon her if it's your will to do so. And we pray for her in that respect, and we pray for us this morning, too, as we seek to continue to understand your ninth commandment. Lord, I pray that you would change us through your word, and Lord, I pray that your word would be taught in truth this morning. In your holy and precious name, I pray, amen. All right, well, we are this morning continuing with the Ten Commandments, and we are, as I have said the last couple of weeks, we're starting to get to the end of the Ten Commandments. We're on part two of the Ninth Commandment, and you can turn in your Bibles if you want to to Exodus 20, verse 16, which is where the commandment is found, but I suspect that we already know the commandment. You probably memorized it at some point, and the Ninth Commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And last week we had done really two things as kind of a, an introduction to the commandment in order to understand its scope. First of all, we tried to understand what the commandment was, uh, how the commandment would have been received by ancient Israel when it says you shall not bear false witness. And you remember that we talked last week about how I said that, that the commandment for the Israelites primarily, when it, what would come to their mind primarily is not so much just lying in general, although the commandment does forbid that, but it was more about being a false witness in a judicial court. For Israel, the courtroom wasn't something that, you know, they were relatively familiar with. It wasn't something that they were, you know, um, familiar with because they watched Judge Judy or something. But the courtroom was something that they were familiar with because it was part of the daily life of the Israelites. They were in the courtroom a lot. It was in the gatehouse of the city. Every time they went in and out of the city, they were witnessing a trial taking place. And because of that, this, there was a centrality of witnesses in the Old Testament. There was a huge, huge emphasis on them in the courtroom because they oftentimes determined whether a trial went one way or the other. Whatever the witness said, whatever the testimonies said, that's why there had to be more than one witness in order to even bring a charge against somebody. And so what, what that symbolizes for us is that because this commandment deals with something that was part of the daily lives of the Israelites, we see that it really matters for um, helping us understand that this should be a part of our daily lives too, not bearing false witness. And because the commandment deals more broadly with... with um, I lost my words here. Because the commandment deals more broadly with being a truthful people. That's how we understand the commandment today, just like they understood it back then. Being a, a false witness was compromising the truth. It compromised justice in the court system. God wanted his people to be a people of truth, is what we talked about last week. And so that's how this commandment applies to us in the same way. And it has more applications than just being in a courtroom. It has all kinds of things outside of that. And so the second thing then that we talked about last week was how... The centrality of truth in Israel and in Christianity shows us that this commandment requires us to do certain things. And what it requires us to do is to preserve truth. And so we went down that list of things last week about what is required of us as Christians in order to preserve truth. And so today, 
as we continue to look at this ninth commandment, we want to do two things. Well, you might not want to, but I want to do two things. So that's what we're going to do. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at what's forbidden in the ninth commandment as we follow the Westminster Catechism, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But then the third thing, or sorry, the second thing that we're going to do, which I think will take the most time, and is probably what you're most interested in hearing about, is the question, is it ever permissible to tell a lie? Is there ever a situation ethically where it's permissible to tell a lie? We'll spend most of our time on that. And I, it's kind of interesting. Most people have said that they've been looking forward to discussing that issue the most. And I find it kind of funny that we like to discuss the exceptions to the commandment or the possible exceptions to the commandment and not the actual commandment itself. So, But that's okay. We'll still spend a lot of time on it because it's a very serious uh, question and I want to address it in the best way that I can. So firstly... Let's look at what's forbidden in the commandment. We looked at what was required in the commandment last week. Now we look at what's forbidden. And if you look at our catechism in question 145, the answer to the question, what is forbidden in the ninth commandment, is basically the longest answer for any of the commandments about what's forbidden or required. It's very long. And so what I could do is I could spend three weeks going through the list, which I don't think you would be too happy about because we've been going through a lot of lists in this series. Uh, the other thing that I can do is what I decided to do, and that is to kind of summarize what is forbidden in the commandment by highlighting the major things in the catechism. And so that's what I've done here. I've highlighted the 10 things forbidden in the commandment that are representative of all the things in the list. Okay, that's what I tried to do, my best to do that. So here are the top 10 things forbidden in the commandment, and we'll go through these fairly quickly so that we can spend time on our special ethical issue. Firstly, we are forbidden from tearing down the good name of our neighbors. And we don't have to spend a lot of time on this because we talked about it a lot last week. But you remember that this commandment forbids us from tearing down the good name of our neighbors. And what that means is that, first of all, that assumes that our neighbor that's in question here has a good reputation, you know, has a legitimately good reputation, uh, the second thing it assumes is that when we tear it down, we are tearing it down by means of slander or false stories or rumors or exaggeration or the highlighting of bad things and the, the um, suppressing of good things about them and so on. And we, we tear down their legitimate good name by means of various kinds of falsehoods. That's what's in view here. That is forbidden. We are not to do that. We are to promote and preserve the good name of our neighbor insofar as that's what the truth requires of us to do. Okay? So that's what's forbidden. We won't spend a lot of time on that because we talked about it a lot last week. Uh, number two, what else is forbidden? Wittingly pleading an evil cause. Wittingly pleading an evil cause. Wittingly meaning knowingly. That is, you know that you're pleading an evil cause. There's a couple of examples that we can kind of understand what the catechism is saying here. Think about a lawyer, for example. You know, lawyers are hired by their clients to defend their cause, right? To prove their innocence. And oftentimes, in every case really, there's going to be a lawyer that is defending someone who's not actually innocent, right? <laughs> defending, he's hired to defend a murderer when the murderer actually did commit the crime. If the lawyer then takes that job and tries to argue and tries to figure out some way to twist the truth so that he can prove that the murderer is innocent to the jury, 
That's a perfect example of pleading an evil cause. And that's lying. That's perverting the truth. That is not what we're called to do as Christians. So that would be one obvious way we could plead something that's evil. But uh, there's other ways we could do this. Say, for example, as a teacher or a parent. We're teaching our children. We're teaching our students. When I'm teaching y'all, when my seminary professors are teaching me, when Adam is preaching or so on, there's all kinds of ways that we could plead an evil cause in that way because if the teacher, whether it be a parent or a pastor or a professor or whatever, knowingly teaches something that is wrong, that would be pleading an evil cause as well. If I were to stand up here and knowingly teach you something that's wrong, I'd be pleading an evil cause. I'd be teaching a lie. That would be wrong of me to do. Now, notice here, though, it says knowingly teaching something that's a lie. Because I guarantee you, there will be times I'll be up here and I will teach you something that is a lie, but I don't know it. Because I've misunderstood the Bible. Or I've misunderstood theology or something. Or I'm just human and I'm imperfect and something is going to be wrong. Right? And you, you already know that. You probably maybe even have detected things that I've said that are wrong that you don't agree with at some point. Or maybe you will eventually. Maybe you will this morning when I'm teaching on the um, question, is it ever permissible to lie? Right? So it's not about just teaching something that's a lie that you don't know. But it's knowingly pleading an evil cause. Knowingly saying something or teaching something that is wrong. Okay, That's what's in view here. So we want to avoid that as Christians. Thirdly, calling evil good and good evil. Calling evil good and good evil. It's easy to see how, say, our culture does this. Take the issue of you know, homosexuality. The scripture clearly calls it evil. The culture says, no, it's, it's not evil. In fact, it's not only just permissible, but it's right. It's good. Well, that's calling evil good. Right? We can see how that's pretty, pretty straightforward. What about, though, for Christians? Can we sometimes call something that is evil good and call something that is good evil? I, I think we can. I think we do it unknowingly sometimes, or sometimes we may even do it knowingly. As an example, take uh, say a Christian person who says, I don't think Christians need to go to church at all. Just don't need to go at all. I'm going to live my entire life never going to church. Well, the scripture doesn't teach that, does it? The scripture teaches don't neglect the gathering together to worship God and hear the preaching of the word. That's an important biblical teaching. But if a Christian says, no, I think the Bible's wrong, or no, I just don't want to think about that, I'm going to call my practice good of not going to church. That's calling evil good even for a Christian to do. To, to ignore the clear teaching of the word in favor of my own convenience. That's a way that we can call evil good and good evil. So we want to avoid that. We want to know what the Bible says and then do it. That's why we're going through this series on the Ten Commandments. We want to know what the commandments teach so that we can do it. We won't do it perfectly, but that's our goal. So that's three. Uh, four, concealing the truth by undue silence in a just cause. If the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is required of us in a given situation, say, in, as our, in our testimony before a court, we are not to conceal the truth. We are to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. 
Otherwise, justice is compromised in that situation. So when the truth is due, we speak it fully. But that needs to be held very closely with number five here, which says we are also forbidden from speaking the truth when it ought to be concealed. So there are times when the truth is required, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and then there are also times when justice requires that we withhold the truth or we conceal it. All right? if, if I used this example last week. If Pastor Adam is in a counseling situation, counseling someone who's going through marriage issues or something, is he required to tell all of us all the confidential things that were going on in that counseling session? Of course not. I see you shaking your heads. No. He's not required. Prudence requires that truth be concealed, that he not tell the truth. doesn't necessarily mean he lies about what was going on in the counseling session, but he just doesn't have to say anything, right? The truth can be concealed. Uh, Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool utters all his mind, but a wise man keeps it in till afterwards. So we need to be very careful about thinking about, okay, when is the whole truth due? When is it not due? And sometimes that requires us to actually analyze a situation and think something through. But those are the two principles. We can break it by speaking the truth when it ought to be concealed or by withholding the truth when it ought to be revealed. Okay. Number six, half done here. Number six, speaking the truth for malicious or wrong ends. Now you would think that if the Bible calls us to truthfulness, we should always tell the truth even if we have some subservient malicious intent with the truth. But actually, if we are speaking the truth for the wrong reasons, we can actually become guilty of breaking this commandment. In 1 Samuel 22, there's this guy named Doeg the Edomite. Great baby name. Jordan and I are thinking about this one. Doeg the Edomite told Saul where David went. Okay, because David was fleeing from Saul at this time. And he said, hey, Saul, I know where David went. He's at the house of Ahimelech. And that's all we're told in the historical narrative in 1 Samuel. That just describes what Doeg did. But in Psalm, I think it's 52. Yeah, Psalm 52, Doeg is characterized as a deceiver. But he told the truth. He told Saul where David was going. David really was at the house of Ahimelech. But the Bible categorized him as a deceiver because he told the truth with a malicious intent. Namely, he told the truth so that David would be murdered by Saul. That's a category of deception in biblical categories. We wouldn't think about that so much in our own day. That's a little bit out there, but that's how the Hebrews would have understood deception. Telling the truth for wrong reasons, with malicious intents. And our catechism picked up on that, which I think is very impressive that they were thinking like the Old Testament when they put these together. Seven, what else is forbidden? Perverting the truth to a wrong meaning or in doubtful and equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. Meaning taking the truth, a truthful statement about something, and twisting it, distorting it, purposely trying to make it sound like something else in order to generate a certain response out of somebody else. And I talked about that example a lot last week, so we won't spend a great deal of time on it, but we're not to pervert the truth. We're to speak it and make sure that we're accurately communicating it 
that we're not trying to deceive by using equivocal expressions and clever ways of phrasing things. We don't want to do that. That's a, that's a form of lying, perverting the truth. Three more. We are forbidden from thinking and speaking too highly or too lowly of ourselves or others. We all know we're not supposed to boast about ourselves, speak too highly about ourselves, exaggerate our talents or exaggerate our accomplishments to make ourselves seem better in other people's eyes. We, we know that. We've been taught that since we were this high. One of the first lessons you learned in Sunday school probably. At least it was for me. But then there's this other side that our catechism's trying to draw out for us, and that is speaking too lowly of ourselves, putting on a mask of false humility. We're not to do that either, because that's also a form of lying. And it's a, a kind of a form of pride in one sense, so trying to take pride in the fact that we're so humble that we're going to, to try to stomp out any compliments we get from people. So we're not to think too highly, or we're not to speak too highly, of ourselves, and we're not to think and speak too lowly about ourselves. We're to accurately assess ourselves and accurately speak about ourselves to people. Two more. Second to last, we're forbidden from raising false rumors, entertaining false rumors. This is just uh, telling us that we're not to gossip. Gossip is a perversion of the truth. It's the entertaining of stories that may or may not be true but are interesting to talk about and give us lots of food for conversation. Hey, did you hear so-and-so? I can't believe that so-and-so did that. I don't. Why did he do that? I don't know. I wonder. Maybe he did it for this reason. No, do you think? That's gossip, right? We don't want to be involved in that. Gossip destroys relationships and communities. I had a good friend high school, my best friend. We did everything together. He was a good Christian guy. Freshman year of college, I started to, stories started to circulate around the college campus that got back to me that were stories about me that were totally fabricated. And I was like, good grief, where did these come from? I started asking around. I found out that my friend had been making up stuff and exaggerating things for his own gains. And I don't need to go into more details than that, but that was what was going on. And that ruined the relationship. Because I couldn't trust him anymore. Gossip destroys relationships. It destroys communities. It destroys churches. It destroys anything else, right? It destroys everything because we lose trust. And it breaks this commandment. So we're not to gossip. I know you know this but we all need to be hit over the head sometimes because sometimes we need to just be told things over and over and over again. Uh, last one, number 10. We are forbidden from, from breaching lawful promises. When we promise to do something, when we let our yes be yes and say, yes, I will do that, or no, I won't do that, and we don't deliver, we don't fulfill our end of the agreement, we don't keep our word, we breach our promise and we have lied because we said we'd do it and we didn't do it. We are not to breach lawful promises and this ought to cause us to hesitate when we even promise something. To hesitate to say, yes, I, I promise you I will do that when we aren't entirely sure we can deliver. Keeping our word is very important. 
and we want to make sure that we are making legitimate and realistic promises to people so we can be known as people of our word and not as people who frequently break our word. Okay? All right, so that, just in a nutshell, is the overall, you know, things that are forbidden in this commandment according to the catechism. Now, on to the fun part. No, this isn't the fun part. This is the the more controversial part. I guess that's why I say it's the fun part. It's the more controversial part. It's the question, is it ever permissible to tell a lie? We now understand the overarching like pieces of this commandment that it tells us to promote truth, to be a people characterized by truth, to be a people who preserve the truth. That's what all this is all about. And now we get to take all these truths and apply it to specific situations. And the question is, is there ever a situation when it's permissible to deceive? And just to, to frame it in a specific example, which you're all well familiar with, I'm sure, and you've all probably thought about before, for sure, think about in World War II, <clears throat> when the Nazis were going door to door, and they wanted to know if you, say, were hiding Jews in your house. And you know they're going to take these Jews, they're going to kill them, they're going to send them to concentration camps where, where they'll die and be tortured and so on. You know all this is happening. You know why they're asking you. And the question is, is it permissible to deceive the Nazi soldiers in that situation? Or in any other situation, is there ever a time when it's okay to use deception? That's the question. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know how many of you have thought about this before. I think you all have probably thought about it before, yeah. at least somewhat-ish. Yes? Okay, good. So yeah, we've all thought about it to some extent, some more than others. And I'll tell you, this is well thought by a lot of different Christian ethicists. They spend a lot of time thinking about this issue. Ethicist is someone who studies ethics and tries to answer difficult ethical questions. And I'll tell you, it's a house divided, even among Christian ethicists, whether it's permissible to deceive someone for some reason. Christians are not united on this. Even Reformed people are not always united on this particular question. Some say, just to give you an example of this, I went to a college um, after high school, a, a uh, Bible college in Minneapolis, and I did an associate's degree there. And uh, during my first semester, my systematic theology professor said in, in class one day, it is never permissible to lie. If the Nazis come to your door and they say, listen up, tell us where the Jews are, you are required to tell them where the Jews are. Never permissible to lie. And then he gave his case for it, and all of us students were just wide-eyed, and we were taking notes very carefully and saying, oh, look at this wonderful argument. This is so true. Okay, I guess we can never lie. And then, two days later, in another class, a class on the um, historical books in the Bible, our Old Testament professor got up and said, it, there are very specific examples and very specific situations in which it is okay to deceive and to lie to people. And then he used the Nazi example again, and he said, yes, you can lie in this situation. And then he gave his case, and we were all taking notes carefully, and we are like, oh, wow, so we can lie. But then we're like, oh, wait, our other professor in the same school, in the same denomination, 
said we couldn't. We were confused. We were a confused class of students, okay? Because in the same week, we had two opposite cases made for something. And that's just to show you the divergence here sometimes that you can find among Christians. We don't all agree on this issue. Some say we cannot ever tell a lie. Some say there are situations in which we can tell a lie. And it's for that reason that as I dare to try to answer this question or dare to try to deal with this question, I approach it with a a great deal of, of genuine humility because I know it's a difficult issue. But I also approach it with a sense of comfort and a sense of assurance because I do think, in my judgment, the Bible does answer this question and it answers it pretty well. And so there's a combination here of humility and firmness on my part because I do believe the Bible answers the question and I have an answer. But not everyone agrees with it. So I'm just telling you straight away. So let's deal with this question. Is it ever permissible to lie? And what we want to do is we want to look at some cases in Scripture where people lie and figure out, okay, what can we learn from this? Because there are accounts in Scripture where people lie. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. You, I'm sure, well, I guess maybe I don't know for sure, but I would imagine that a lot of you have read through the book of Joshua before. And you know that the book of Joshua is about conquering and about taking over cities. Israelites are going into the land of Canaan. They're taking back the land. And in Joshua chapter 2, we read that Joshua sends spies into the land, specifically to Jericho. And something happens to them. And here we read about it in Joshua chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel, or sorry, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof, and had hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, you don't need a PhD in theology or in biblical exegesis to figure out what happened in this story. Right? Rahab lied to her king. Very clearly, she lied to the messengers that her king sent. She said, I don't know where these spies went. They, they ran out the gate. Go, get them quick. When in actuality, she had hid them on her roof. So very clearly here, we see example of civil disobedience against her king. And we see an example of a bold-faced lie to the face of the messengers of the king. That's very clear. No one argues about that. It's very clear that she lied. But the question is, was she right? In line. That's the very question we're asking, isn't it? Because the, the messengers here 
uh, sorry, not the messengers, the uh, spies that Joshua sent, their life is in jeopardy. Their life is in jeopardy uh, because these men are going to kill them. They're at least going to torture them in some way. And Rahab lies to protect them. And so the question is, is she right in doing that? Is that a good thing? Is that something she had to do? Is it necessary? Or, or here's the question too, should she have had more faith and told the truth? See, this is where the two views come into play. My systematic theology professor at this school would have said, well, Rahab didn't have the faith that she needed in order to tell the truth. She didn't have enough faith. She relied on her own human cunning. And she didn't really believe in the sovereignty of God to protect her. And so she thus didn't tell the truth. That's kind of how that first position is outlined. You need, in the situation here, you're supposed to tell the truth and you need to have faith in the sovereignty of God in order to work out the situation. Like, you know, other people did in the Nazi situation. And so that becomes the question then for them. She didn't have enough faith to tell the truth. That's, I mean, that's one way of answering it, at least. Now, the question is, when we look at Scripture, is Rahab's lie here characterized as being a lie? Or, sorry, let me put it this way. Is Rahab's activities here, and is Rahab herself, characterized as being someone who didn't have enough faith to tell the truth? Or is she characterized as someone who had a massive amount of faith? And the book of Hebrews, I think, pretty well answers this question because Rahab is listed in Hebrews 11 as a role model for Christian believers in terms of faith. She, it says, by faith, Rahab protected the spies. And she's listed in that great long list of people who had amazing faith in God. So, her faith is strong. It's strong in God. She's a role model for us. Then, then the question comes up, okay, fine, well, maybe, maybe she was praised for her faith in spite of her lie. Maybe she was praised for her faith that the spies were who they said they were and that they were from God and so on, but then she made a, a second mistake in lying. That's possible. Do you know in James chapter 2, verse 25, however, it's, James says, Was not Rahab, this is, I'm quoting the verse here, Was not Rahab justified by works when she protected the spies and sent them out by another way? Now here, James, of course, as you, as you may know, is using justification in a different sense than we would. Right? For us, we use justification with reference to how Paul described it, where we're justified before God and declared righteous in his sight. James is using justified in the sense of our faith being seen by men, that people see that we actually have faith, and they're like, oh, yeah, you do have faith. And that, that's what he means when he says Rahab was justified by works. That is, her faith is made known to us by seeing what she did. And what did she do? She protected the spies and sent them out by another way. How did she protect them? She protected them. In, in my judgment, when he says this, she protected them by hiding them and by concealing them from the king's men. 
and she sent them out by another way. Another way than what? Probably another way than what she told the king's men. So it seems to me that the, the best way to understand Rahab is to say she was praised because she lied. I can't prove that. It's not explicitly said, right? But I think it's implicitly there. She was praised because she lied. Now why? Why on earth? Why on earth would, would the author of Hebrews or the author of James say, look at Rahab's faith in what she did protecting the spies if they meant that she lied? Why would they praise that? It seems to me they should condemn that. I think they praise her for this reason. They don't directly praise the lie because a lie is never intrinsically a good thing. Just like killing is never intrinsically a good thing, but it's still commanded by God for the sake of justice sometimes. The lie is never, is never explicitly praised, but it's the whole of what she did that was praised. She had faith in God that caused her to recognize when justice demanded that she use deception to accomplish a greater good, namely the protection of the innocent life of the spies. Okay? Rahab was wise enough to know when deceit is legitimate to use for a greater end. It's the same, it's the same kind of principle that we use when we talk about killing. Is killing ever intrinsically a good thing that's going to happen in heaven? No, of course not. But the scripture clearly shows that God, even though that thing is not an intrinsic or a clean thing, God still shows in scripture that he commands it and that justice requires it in a sinful world. It's never a good thing to be involved in, as a soldier in a war killing people. But nonetheless, God commands it in scripture. It's never an intrinsically good thing to kill someone in self-defense, but God commands it in Scripture. Why? Because it brings about justice, and sometimes justice has to prevail, even though it requires an unclean thing. David was commanded by God, King David that is, to go out and kill all kinds of people in the Old Testament, right? To, to take out the Canaanites and the Philistines and so on. He killed an awful lot of people by God's command. And yet God said, David, you don't get to build the temple because you've killed too many people. You're unclean. See, there's a fine line here between something sinful and something that's unclean. They're not always exactly the same. And so lying would be categorized like killing, in my judgment. But lying is an unclean thing, and it's never directly praised, just like killing is never directly praised. But it is commanded by God in certain situations because of justice. And I think that's the kind of thing we're seeing at Rahab here. That Rahab did, she, she had enough wisdom in her faith in God to know when deceit was to bring about justice, namely the protection of innocent life. Okay, now, Rahab's not the only person in the Bible who was in this situation. Flip over to Exodus chapter 1. There's another situation that's exactly the same in terms of what happens. Exodus uh, chapter 1. Let's see, I took the time. Exodus chapter 1, uh, verse 15 and following. It says this Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Here again, we have another example of civil disobedience against the king of Egypt, namely Pharaoh, and an example of a bold-faced lie, making up a story, deceiving Pharaoh, and all for what? To protect innocent life. Same thing again. Now, what we would expect, perhaps, what I would expect, and honestly, if, if this was something that they did that was wrong, God would say afterwards, how could you do this? Why didn't you trust me? Where's your faith? Come on, don't you, aren't you Calvinist? I'm sovereign. That's not what he did. It says thus, verse 20, after they lie, after they get done explaining the lie, God says, thus God dealt well with the midwives and he gave them families because they feared God. They had faith. So you see what's going on here. It's the same thing again. As the situation in Rahab, not not a hint that they did anything wrong, but all kinds of praise showered upon them. And I think the reason is because they had enough faith and enough wisdom to recognize when justice required deceit, when justice required deception, to keep a greater evil from happening. You remember the principle that we talked about with regard to self-defense. Why is, one is, why is one of the reasons that, we, that I believe self-defense is important? Well, it's because if I have the power to stop someone from killing myself or someone else, and I don't do anything about it, that makes me an accomplice to the crime. Even if I have to commit an unclean action to stop it, namely killing the same thing when it comes to lying I think if I have the power to stop someone from killing the Jews in my attic by using deception and I don't do it and I say oh yeah they're up in the attic and the Nazis go up there and kill them I'm an accomplice to the crime and that's I think why the midwives and why Rahab are being praised here. Their faith in God to recognize what justice required here. Their faith in God to do what they could to preserve the innocent lives that were at stake and not just to surrender them. They did what justice required here. Final example. 1 Samuel chapter 16. R.C. Sproul, when he deals with this question... By the way, I kind of consider R.C. Sproul my mentor, even though I never met the man. Uh, I've spent so much time reading his books and listening to his teaching that I feel like I probably could have known him. But anyway, R.C. Sproul, when he deals with this question, says, Exodus chapter 1 was the key text for him that helped him see that lying in certain situations is right. Okay, that's what Sproul said. The Exodus chapter 1 passage was the, was the big one for him. I think 1 Samuel was the big one for me. Here it is, the first. I think it's the first four verses of 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord, oh, this is right when Samuel is going to go anoint David to be king over Israel, and he's afraid. Um, here we are in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? 
Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem, etc., etc. Now notice what's happening here in this text. It's a little different than Rahab and the midwives, but there's still something that holds them all together. Notice what happens. Samuel is afraid for his life. Saul will kill me if he knows I'm going to go and anoint David as king. It's a legitimate fear. I would be afraid if I were Samuel, giving given Saul's reputation of just being a crazy man. And so what does God do? Does he say, Samuel, come on, where's your faith? Trust my sovereignty. Aren't you a Calvinist man? No, he doesn't say that. He says, take a heifer, and if anyone asks, just tell him you're going to sacrifice. Now, Samuel did take a heifer, and Samuel did offer a sacrifice. So it's a truthful statement on the one hand. But notice it's not the whole truth here. It is a half-truth. When Samuel says to anyone who asks, yeah, I'm going to go and offer sacrifice as a heifer, that's a half-truth. That's not really what he's doing. That's not really his purpose. It's a half-truth with the intent to deceive anyone who asks. And notice, Samuel didn't come up with this. God did. God told Samuel to tell people that he was going to offer a sacrifice, which he was, but that's not the whole truth. It's a half-truth with the intent to deceive, because that's not what Samuel was there to do. He was there to anoint David as king. And this is prescribed by God. So what do we have here? We have civil disobedience, just like Rahab and, and uh, um, the midwives, civil disobedience against King Saul. We have deception, in this case a half-truth being told with the intent to deceive. And we have the reason. Why did he tell this half-truth? Why did God command him to tell this? It's to preserve Samuel's life, his innocent life. Now, our catechism says that telling a half-truth with the intent to deceive is a violation of this commandment. But it doesn't say that it's a violation all the time. It says it's a violation to not tell the whole truth when it's due. It's a violation to not tell the truth when it's due. And I think here we see again the same principle as with the midwives and with Rahab, and that is this principle. If someone is asking you to give them information that will cause innocent lives to die. The principle here is that the truth is not due to them. We don't give it to them. And in fact, based on these case studies where people are blessed and there's no even hint of of the, the fact that they did any wrong and that God even commands deception on the part of Samuel, I think we can say that we as Christians in good conscience can say that we have the right to use deception to protect innocent life. 
Listen to uh, what R.C. Sproul says here. This is from one of his books, and I'm going to read this quote for you because I think it, it really helps capture this in a very modern, practical way. Here's what he says. If a murderer comes to your house and he wants to know if your children are upstairs in bed and you know that it's his intent to murder them, it's your moral obligation to lie to him, to deceive him as much as you possibly can to prevent those lives from being taken. I think that would also be true in cases of war. I don't think a person is required to tell the enemy where his group is concealed any more than a quarterback in a football game is required to announce to the defense what the intended play is. He can use faking and deception in order to execute the play. That's sort of a war game on the football field. Numerous Christians lied to the Nazis in order to protect Jews from the capture and extermination. I think that in cases in which we know that lying will prevent such evil, it is legitimate. And there's his his uh, moral principle that he's deriving from Rahab and the midwives, if you read before that. And he's saying a greater evil will be accomplished than the unclean act of lying, namely the taking of innocent life. Oops. And we don't want to be accomplices to that crime. And he recognizes the same as me with these case studies. I think we can conclude that. Now, just as we close here, because we're out of time, John Gerstner, who was R.C. Sproul's mentor, um, was a professor, and his students would often say that Gerstner would rather die than lie. But even Gerstner believed the same thing that Sproul taught. There are situations when we ought to lie, where justice requires it. And while I respect the other view very much, I don't hold it. I think that in these case studies, we can see this. But I think we ought always, even in that, to keep at the forefront what Gerstner was known for. We as Christians ought to be people of the truth. We would rather lie than die for the most part. To be people characterized by proclaiming truth and keeping our word. But when an authority figure wants the truth from us, which he does not have a right to by virtue of the sin he wants to commit with that truth. And we ought not to give it to him. And as Sproul says, we ought to deceive him as much as we possibly can. That's what the midwives did. That's what Rahab did. And that's kind of what Samuel did. And I think that's the grace of God. Same thing with self-defense. I think that's the grace of God, knowing in the sinful world in which we live, we find ourselves in difficult situations, and he gives us examples that we can emulate of what to do when we find ourselves in those situations. And know that it's not because we don't use deception because we don't believe God can save us, but we use deception because we fear God and because we want to have the faith that Rahab did, knowing when it was appropriate, when justice required us to use deception. Okay, that's, that's my best answer to this question in 20 minutes. All right, I hope I did all right, but um, I have a different view. We can talk about it. All right, that's the ninth commandment. We are to be people characterized by truth. Just like the commandment about murder, we're to be people characterized by sanctity for life. But that doesn't mean that it applies in every single situation. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that uh, 
there are some difficult things in your word to try to understand, to try to square, to try to look at the whole counsel of your word to figure out what exactly it is that you want us to do. Or we know sometimes that's hard. But we do thank you for your grace in that even if we do something wrong unknowingly, in fact, even if we do something wrong knowingly, we know that you're that you have died on the cross to pay for that sin that we did that was wrong. Lord, give us wisdom as we study your word to figure out what it is that you require of us. Lord, we pray we none of us would ever be in that situation of, of having to lie to an authority to save someone's life. Lord, we pray we'd never be in that situation. But if we are, Lord, give us wisdom to know your word, know what to do, and to have faith in you. You will accomplish what you need to do. Lord, help us to know these things. Help us to study them. Help us to love them. And most of all, Lord, pray that you would help us to remember your gospel and know that anytime we fail to understand, anytime we fail to do the right thing, that we know that your Son has paid the price for us. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.